to find in morning papers It's hard to find in the magazines It doesn't matter what show you tune in It's hard to find on TV screen But it's on talk radio Truth is on talk radio Welcome back, everyone, to Whistling Dixie. And we are proud to have you with us again, and we are set to jump right in. So, here we go. The subject for this week is twofold. I'm going to do two segments. The first segment will be, Is or Was Secession Legal? constitutional, moral, and were the people who wanted to secede, were they in fact traitors, which has been alleged on many, many occasions. Well, let me tell you, uh, jumping into this deal on secession is akin to being a, at least for me, is akin to being a mosquito in a nudist colony. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do in presenting this. I'm just not real sure where to start. First off, let me say that if we are to consider secession as to be criminal or something that we should disassociate ourselves from, then uh, let's discount the Declaration of Independence. Because that is a document of secession. And let's also look at the U.S. Constitution, which is a document of secession from the Articles of Confederation. Now, I realize that's going to be a little tough for some people to handle. But uh, I thought I would, at first, let's look at, and people always want to know, well, what did the courts say? Well, first of all, I'm going to start off with what a... Justice, a U.S. Justice, a recent one, although now deceased, Antonin Scalia. I'm going to start with what he had to say about secession when he was asked formally by a screenwriter. Pardon me. And the screenwriter wanted to know, because he was thinking about doing a movie, so he asked the justices of the Supreme Court, was secession constitutional? 
And the only justice to respond to this screenwriter was Antonin Scalia. And here is his answer. And I quote, I am afraid I cannot be of much help with your problem, principally because I cannot imagine that such a question could ever reach the Supreme Court. To begin with, the answer is clear. If there was any constitutional issue resolved by the Civil War, it is that there is no right to secede. Hence, in the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation indivisible. Secondly, I find it difficult to envision who the parties to this lawsuit might be. Is the state suing the United States for a declaratory judgment? But the United States cannot be sued without its consent, and it has not consented to this sort of suit. Now again, that was in a letter from Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia on the constitutionality of secession in a letter to screenwriter Daniel Turkowitz on October the 31st of 2006. So folks, there we have it directly from the conservative icon of the U.S. Supreme Court at that time, none other than Antonin Scalia. And he says that the question of secession was settled by bullets and bayonets during the Civil War. And should you desire further proof, it is so stated in the Pledge of Allegiance, which was written by a defrocked Marxist socialist minister, Mr. Bellamy. The great sage justice himself does not refer to the Constitution at all in his answer from on high. He depends solely on who stood victorious at the end of an unconstitutional war and the words of an avowed Marxist. Well, hey, let's look at something. Uh, according to what he just said, I could say that, yes, that person lying there was a murderer because I killed him. That is the exact same logic that Antonin Scalia just used. Because someone obtains something by force, and by superiority of force, it makes it somehow legal. Well, if that is true, then we need to do away with all of the robbery, rape, and other uh, crimes. Because if they are accomplished through violence successfully, using the logic of Antonin Scalia, they therefore become legal constitutional, or whatever you want to use. But taken to its logical conclusion, all matters considered by these clowns in black gowns, as I have called them, they should first consider who has the biggest army, and of course, naturally, that's going to be the government, and whose political doctrine governs such decisions. Well, the political doctrine of Mr. Bellamy was straight out of the Marxist playbook. Well, to Justice Scalia, the definition and constitutionality of secession lies in conquest as opposed to consent of the governed and a compact entered into by the states that ratified our Constitution. Well, now, old Dick Cheney's hunting companion, who has now gone on to his final reward, also declares the government cannot be sued without its consent. For those who believe the constitutionality of secession would ever be heard by the Supreme Court, well, perhaps 
<laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe we need to play the lottery. But then again, let's remember that Justice Roberts found a conundrum within a penumbra and declared secession, could, could declare secession to be a tax just like he did Obamacare. Government of the people, by the people, and for the people perished from this earth at the hands of the man who turned that phrase at Gettysburg. To look at the question of the constitutionality of secession, lacking the wisdom of the high position and salary of a justice of the court, I will instead turn to the definition of words and how they were stated when the Constitution was written and subsequently ratified. And that will, you know, take take some effort. Uh, while Scalia's wisdom rests in the use of force and Marxist doctrine, Thomas Jefferson believed that the final meaning should be taken from the intent at the time it was written. So, but let's stop and think about something here before we move on too much farther. And that is, let's define the word secession or to secede. Success, to secede is defined thusly, and I quote, It's a verb used without an object, seceded or seceding, which means to withdraw formally from an alliance, a federation, or association, as from a political union, a religious organization, etc., the key word in the definition for the purpose of our discussion today will be the word federation. Logically, to secede from a federation, one must first be a member of that federation and have willingly acceded to that union. Therefore, it is imperative we define the word acceded or the action to accede. Again, let us turn to the dictionary for that. And that would be a verb used without object, again, acceded, acceding, to give consent, approval, or adherence. Agree, assent, in other words, to accede to a request, to accede to the terms of a contract, unquote. Well, our next question should be whether the states acceded to the Constitution, for that would be required before they could rightly secede. Nowhere can this question be better understood than the great battle of words between Senators Daniel Webster and John C. Calhoun back in 1833. Webster, who was referred to as the great expounder and the godlike Daniel, was a believer in a nationalist form of government, one in which the states were no more than districts of people and had no power as such, just as James Madison in his letter to George Washington stated that the states would exist only as subordinately useful. This was before the convention, folks. Well, but Calhoun, the South Carolinian, believed the majority of the power of government resided in the states as was stated in the Tenth Amendment. Of course, we've gone into that Tenth Amendment and listening to Richard Henry Lee, we know how that was bastardized. But Webster stated in that discussion on the Senate floor, he said, whether the states acceded to the Constitution is the question. Here's what he said. 
The people of the United States use no such form of expression in establishing the present government. It is unconstitutional language. Well, that was a position taken by both Daniel Webster and Supreme Court Justice Justice Story. Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, pardon me. And right in their assertions that the states did not accede to the Constitution. Well, let's look back again at actual quotes from both the Federalist and the states' rights proponents or anti-Federalists during the founding era. Now, James Wilson of Pennsylvania, a nationalist and a member of the first Supreme Court, he wondered during the Constitutional Convention, and here is his direct quote, but will the small states accede to the Constitution? There's the word accede, which Daniel Webster said they never did accede. Elbridge Gerry from Massachusetts during the convention was opposed to a partial confederacy, leaving other states to accede or not to accede, has been intimated. Even Gouverneur Morris, also a delegate to the convention, and the guy who wrote, you know, in the Committee of Style and Arrangement, and the gentleman who spoke most often at the convention. And he said, and I quote, that the accession of eight states reduced our deliberations to the single question of union or no union. Well, he said accession or accede. Patrick Henry from Virginia would state during his state's ratifying convention, and I quote, if it, the Constitution, be amended, every state will accede to it. Now, Benjamin Franklin would state during the ratification process by the states, and I quote Mr. Franklin, Our new Constitution is now established with 11 states, and the accession of a 12th is soon expected. Well, let's jump to the father of our country, Mr. George Washington. He would make this observation as the ratification conventions continued, and I quote Washington, If these would the states eastward and northward should accede to the federal government, unquote. Further proof that the states acceded to the Constitution should not be warranted, uh, I'm sorry, should not be warranted considering what I had just read. Yet with what should have been full knowledge of history by Senator Webster and Justice Story, both waxed eloquent in 1833, that the states did not accede to the Constitution, therefore they could not secede. Now today, it is not uncommon to find supposedly learned historians and writers, authors, extolling the virtues of both Webster and Story. Our aggregate lack of knowledge concerning our own founding principles allows government employees and politicians to make absurd and historically inaccurate claims, such as those made by Justice Scalia, without rebuke. Of course, these statements go unchallenged by the media, which is owned by the government, so they're not going to contest themselves. Until we and our posterity know as much about our founding tenets as we do about sports and entertainment personalities, we don't have much of a chance. The states did accede to the Constitution, therefore they can secede, just as a party to any compact is allowed to do. So, 
there is the point. We look at that. Now let's take a moment and look at the document, the Constitution itself, and see if it alludes to any of this form. Now I'm going to read to you from the article titled Article 7 of the Constitution. And I'm going to do this very slowly because it's very, very critical to the entire subject that we're talking about here today. All right. And it states, The ratification of the conventions of nine states shall be sufficient for the establishment of this Constitution between the states so ratifying the same. Now this point right here completely blows out of the water both Daniel Webster, Joseph Story, Abraham Lincoln in his first inaugural address. It also blows out of the water uh, Chief Justice John Marshall and McCulloch v. Maryland. It blows out of the water the decision which says secession is unconstitutional, uh, that it would be uh, Texas v. White. So we have, in a simple word, this Constitution was not ratified by the people, as many people claim, including Washington, including I'm sorry, including Lincoln, including so many other people who make the false claim that this Constitution was ratified by the people. We have the same thing from several historians who will tell you to, in today's current historians. Kevin Gutzman is one. Several others will out there will tell you that the Constitution was ratified by the people. This in the Constitution itself says something entirely different. Let me read that one more time. The ratification of the conventions of nine states shall be sufficient for the establishment of this Constitution between the states so ratifying the same. It was the states who ratified the Constitution. It was not the people in aggregate who ratified the Constitution. That is something that is very, very, very critical. And so, being contrary to the good uh, King Abe I, Abraham Lincoln who made uh, the statement that it was a constitution ratified by the people, the people in aggregate. Here is something to stop and think about with the constitution itself. The constitution, as we have just read from Article 7, was created by the states. The federal government was not a party to that. It was created by the states. So just imagine, if you will, you create something or you get together with several of your friends and you create something. Does that creation then become your boss? Does it then become the do-all to end-all? Does it become your personal Frankenstein? Well, if we listen to the people today explain to us about how secession is unconstitutional and how we can't secede 
and no one should be able to secede because you would tear up that beautiful union. Stop and think about this. These are people who are telling you the thing created is stronger than the creator. Now, Christians, what would your thoughts be on this? Is what God created, is that the ruler of God? The analogy is perfect, in my opinion. So I believe that we have established, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that what was formed with the ratification was a, an agreement between the states. If not, the whole darn thing is unconstitutional. So it was an agreement between the states. Now here's something we know, that the Articles of Confederation claim that they were perpetual in Article 10 of the Articles of Confederation. But obviously they were not perpetual because they were ignored by the people at the convention. But yet, people like Webster, Story, and Lincoln have said in public addresses that because the Articles of Confederation were perpetual, then the Constitution was perpetual, the con the, that the Articles which were perpetual, which they destroyed, made the new creation, the Constitution of the United States, made that perpetual. Now, let's look at a contract. It is obviously a compact or a contract between the states, as I stipulated before. All right, did that contract have a term? Did it say that it would last for X number of years? or it would be finished at X number of years. Well, here is something very critical, and you need to understand this when we look at the common law, which was in effect for a little over 400 years before the Constitution was written. Let's take a look at what the common law says about a contract with no term. A contract with no term is a contract at will, which means that any of the parties in a contract with no term can leave at their own discretion whenever they so choose. But then you're probably going to tell me, uh, hey, a rebel, uh, look, the founders thought what they were creating was perpetual, and that was understood. Well, you know, I'm about to tell you that that ain't so. Because let's stop and think about an incident that happened in 1794. Here at the U.S. Senate was a senator from Virginia by the name of John Taylor of Caroline. And there were a lot of John Taylors in Virginia during that time. That's the reason he took on the moniker John Taylor of Caroline to differentiate, differentiate him from others of the same name. So John Taylor of Caroline had been appointed to complete the term of Richard Henry Lee when Richard Henry Lee resigned from the Congress in 1792. Uh, resigned from the Senate, which is the Congress, so a correct statement. So 
he is very much disturbed as a U.S. senator about the debt that is being accumulated through the Bank of the United States by Alexander Hamilton and his minions. He is quite upset about that. He makes a speech, a very impassioned speech, on the floor of the U.S. Senate in 1794, and he says, I am resigning my position, and I am going back to Virginia, and I'm going to do everything I can within my state to fight this debt. This debt will destroy us. We do not need this constant debt. It needs to be paid off. We need to make whatever sacrifices are necessary and get this paid off. It needs to be done. Well, after that speech, he is leaving and he is uh, stopped by fellow Senator Rufus King. Now, Rufus King was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention from Massachusetts. But now he was a senator from New York, but he was at the Constitutional Convention. He asked uh, John Taylor of Caroline, would you step into this meeting room and let's have a little discussion? And so he begins by telling John Taylor of Caroline that, hey, this deal, this contract between the North and the South is never going to work. We're too different. We're two different peoples. And here's what we're afraid of. We're afraid that when South Carolina, and we know that in the upcoming election, South Carolina is going to have two senators, you know, the appointments from the uh, legislature at that time, but they already saw what was happening, that the legislature of South Carolina was being overtaken by anti-federalists. And they said the next two senators from South Carolina are going more likely going to be anti-federalists, which is going to give the uh, that side more of a vote in our uh, Senate, and we don't want that. About this time, the door opens and in walks Oliver Ellsworth, who was also a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. So here's two men who were there. And they, then he agrees with Rufus King, and he says, look, let's separate now. This is never going to work. Our ideals are different, north and south. The people are different, north and south. This is just not going to work. And they said, look, why don't you go back and tell Virginia and other southern states that you need to, we need to split this. This needs to be done now. So when we look at this, discussion of did the founders think they were creating a document in perpetuity obviously they didn't because here's two delegates who are now in the u.s senate who are saying let's split this thing it's not going to work let's get this done well ironically it was john taylor of caroline who didn't want to do that he did not want to break up the union but he wanted to get rid of the debt, which New England, and we will study that in history, New England never wanted to get rid of the debt. That was something that they saw as a tool that they could use forever in their pursuits. So having established that the founders did not think they were creating a perpetual union, 
uh, which blows, as I said before, so many people out of the water, including King Abe the First. Let's take a look at some other points of history here that will show us very much that this was again. And let's stop and think about something here before we move on much further. And that is almost every state constitution. When you look at it, almost all of them begin with a Bill of Rights. It's very early on in their constitution, the state constitutions, before the powers of government are listed, the powers of the people are listed, what the people have the right to do. And in almost every state constitution, one of the first points is the people have a right to alter or abolish the government at such time as it ceases to meet their needs. So it's in the state constitutions. Of course, they're going to tell you, well, the supremacy clause of the Constitution overrides all of the state constitutions. And so, therefore, you don't have the right that it states in your Bill of Rights. And your Bill of Rights, therefore, are just uh, useless. Forget them. But no, let's stop and think about something else. What about what did the states say when they ratified the Constitution themselves? Now, that is very critical. And I'm going to read from three different state ratification conventions. And this, again, as I stated, I think you will find most interesting. Well, again, before I jump right into that, let's look at a little rehash if we could. And that would be a contract with no term is a contract that can be negated or abrogated at will. There is just, okay, well, I'm unhappy with this. I don't like how it's working. So we can end the contract right here. Again, English common law that had been in effect for 400 years. Now, over 500 years with us. So now I'm going to jump right into the ratification agreement. Let's start with the state of New York on July the 26th of 1788. And here is what they state. That all power is originally vested in and consequently derived from the people and that government is instituted by them for their common interest, protection, and security, that the enjoyment of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are essential rights which every government ought to respect and preserve. Now, here's the critical part, that the powers of government may be reassumed by the people whensoever it shall become necessary to their happiness. Wow. Happiness at will. It's a contract at will. It was just restated by New York in their ratification agreement. Okay, now let's take a little look at Virginia's ratification agreement. And it says, uh, on behalf of the people of Virginia, declare and make known that the powers granted under the Constitution, being derived from the people of the United States, may be resumed by them 
whensoever the same shall be perverted to their injury or oppression, and that every power not granted thereby remains with them and at their will. So there again, we have another state putting in their ratification agreement that they can leave whenever they feel that the government has gone against the will of the people of their individual state. Now you're going to especially like Rhode Island's ratification agreement. And and I will read from that agreement now. And that there are certain natural rights of which men, when they form a social compact, cannot derive or divest their posterity, among which are the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety that all power is naturally vested in and consequently derived from the people, that magistrates therefore are their trustees and agents, and at all times amenable to them, that the powers of government may be reassumed by the people whensoever it shall become necessary to their happiness. Again, it's a contract at will. Whenever they become unhappy with the government, doesn't give any other stipulations. It says when they become unhappy with the government. Now, both New York and Rhode Island mention the word happiness. So the question might be from that point, well... So what if three states put it in their ratification agreement? Well, let's go back to the wording of the Constitution and see what the Constitution says in reference to like the three states or maybe even if only one put it in their ratification agreement. Now, you have to understand that once the federal government accepted that ratification agreement, Again, we constituted a contract. And it's very important to understand that when Virginia seceded in 1861, in April of 1861, when they voted to secede, after they had voted not to secede, and then voted to secede because Abraham Lincoln ordered them to provide troops to invade their sister states. And the state of Virginia seceded because of that. That was the vote. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. And they seceded along with North Carolina, Arkansas, and Tennessee, who also seceded for the same reason. But it's important to understand that in their secession documents, the state of Virginia went back and referenced their ratification agreement. And then what they did was legally and officially rescind their own agreement, which was a contract again at will. Well, let's take a look at what the Constitution says about the subject here. If Virginia in their agreement, in their compact, in their contract, Rhode Island in theirs, and also 
uh, New York, if they have these stipulations inside their ratification agreements, then Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution says something very simple. The citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. Therefore, if those three states had those privileges and immunities as outlined in their ratification agreement, all states have the same thing. It's simple. It's right there in the wording itself. Now, I think it's uh, time for me to jump forward a little bit, and let's look at a quote from a speech by the member of Congress in 1848 who was known as Abraham Lincoln. And I quote, Any people anywhere being inclined in having the power have the right to rise up and shake off the existing government and form a new one that suits them better. This is a most valuable, a most sacred right a right which we hope and believe is to liberate the world, unquote. So, you might ask yourself, what happened to Mr. Lincoln and that comment in Congress between 1848 and 1860 when he's uh, elected president of the United States? What changed him? Well, I think it's critical that we understand that because while he was in Congress, he made friends with a fellow member of Congress. And this member of Congress kind of gave him a little bit of a problem because this member of Congress had actually written a formal complaint accusing Mr. Lincoln of padding his expense account, his congressional expense account. Now, who would this be? It would be Horace Greeley. And Horace Greeley later became the publisher of the New York Tribune, the largest newspaper with the largest circulation in the world in 1860. And Greeley was an avowed Marxist. He had as his chief editor Charles A. Dana, a close friend of Karl Marx. And not only that, but Karl Marx wrote more essays, more articles, more editorials for the New York Tribune than any other writer during their history. Now again, go back and understand, in 1860, the most widely published newspaper on the planet was Marxist. And it had as its chief editorialist none other than Karl Marx himself. Now Charles A. Dana, who was the editor at the newspaper, in 1862 would leave that position to become the assistant secretary of war for Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln, from 1848 to 1860, became an avowed Marxist. And there are many ways that we can prove this. 
that it can be shown that he was a Marxist. There's actually been books been written about it. One of the Kennedys and another gentleman wrote a book called The Red Republicans and Lincoln Marxist. It is full of documented material. So Lincoln in 1848 thought that secession was fine. And then by 1860, supported by the political party, the Republican political party, founded in Ripon, Wisconsin, which was a party founded by Marxists. Now, let me read a little bit of Mr. Lincoln from his first inaugural address. Notice, please, the wording here. And he says, and I quote, I hold that in contemplation of universal law and of the Constitution, the union of these states is perpetual. Perpetuity is implied, if not expressed, in the fundamental law of all national government. And he continues, he says, It is safe to assert that no government proper ever had a provision in its organic law for its own termination. Continue to execute all of the express provisions of our national constitution, and the union will endure forever it being impossible to destroy it except by some action not provided for in the instrument itself. Again, if the United States be not a government proper, but an association of states in the nature of contracts merely, can it, as a contract, be peaceably unmade by less than all the parties who made it? One party to a contract may violate it, break it, so to speak, but does it not require all to legally rescind it? Unquote. Well, obviously, uh, King Abe I there had never read, or if he had read, he was ignoring it, uh, which is usually what lawyers do if there is a law that uh, they find in uh, contrast to the point they want to make. That is why that... Uh, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall very seldom ever mentioned the Constitution itself uh, in his rulings because most of the time the Constitution was contrary to his rulings. But Lincoln made this statement, and he said that no one could leave a contract unless all parties agreed to have that happen. Well, this totally flies in the face of Article 7, which says that it only takes nine states to create the Constitution. It did not take unanimous consent, which was required in the Articles of Confederation. And there was a reason that the Federalists put that provision of nine instead of all. Now, any way you want to look at it, they were violating the law of the land, which at that time, until the Constitution was ratified in June of 1788, the ruling document was the Articles of Confederation. And the delegates at the convention violated that. But one of the points I wanted to make here especially was the use of the word by Lincoln when he said, or the phrase, I hold that in contemplation of universal law. Now, where 
is universal law ever referenced in any of the legal documents of the United States? Universal law. Now, if you want to really get into it, you will find out that the person who loved the phrase universal law was Karl Marx. So the influence showed through. There was no universal law for him to refer to. So he had created a universal law to correlate with his Marxist ideology. So regardless of what good old King Abe said, let's revert back to the Declaration of Independence and a very key phrase, and that has to do with consent of the governed. And that is, and it says that all just governments rely on consent of the governed. I may be paraphrasing there a bit, but that is in effect the sentence itself. That is the very idea, consent. Now, what is consent? And how does that pertain to a perpetual union, as was claimed by Chief Justice John Marshall and Lincoln and so many others, and, uh, and then in Salmon P. Chase and Texas v. White, claiming that the union was perpetual. Well, if we go back again to English common law and go way back, I mean, maybe even to Henry II, we will learn that no contract is perpetual. Now, you may say, well, that's not listed anywhere, but... Is it not listed in common sense? I mean, let's stop and think about something here for a second. How many of you have ever heard that phrase, till death do us part? That constitutes a contract. But in America today, we have over a 50% divorce rate. Are those contracts perpetual even though perpetuity is stated in the contract itself? And how could that be different from the contract you have and I have with government? And that contract is as long as you perform the duties which I believe or which are listed, and again, we can't use that expressly because they didn't want that in there at all. They didn't want to be confined to their expressly delegated authority. James Madison made that emphatic in the first U.S. Congress with Thomas Tudor Tucker of South Carolina when he said, you know, we cannot confine a government to its expressly delegated powers. It must have the power of implication." Well, implied powers, people, if you tell someone that all they have to do is imply that something was there, which is what uh, Hamilton did with the, uh, the first uh, bank of the United States, it's implied in the wording. Well, then try to find where it's not implied in the learning, in the wording. That begins to be quite a problem. So, is a contract perpetual? Why does anyone have to stay in an abusive relationship? 
And someone please explain to me, even back in 1860, well, you can go back to 1828 with the, uh, uh, you know, the tariff of abominations, of which when South Carolina first threatened to secede back then because of a taxation, a heavy taxation. And so they were not happy, so they wanted to break the contract at will. That's what led to the huge discussion in the Senate between Daniel Webster and John C. Calhoun. And that's one of the reasons that people hate Calhoun today. Because of that, they won't say that, but they're taking down his monuments. They are removing his name from universities. Because he was a racist, because he believed in the rights of the states. And again, let's go back to that crucial issue. Can that which is created in a contract become the boss or the domineering factor over those who created it? Again, the analogy of Frankenstein is well used in this context, in my humble opinion. So looking at consent of the governed, of course, under this government, this runaway despotic government that we have, that consent of the governed has morphed into what we have in actuality, which dictates to function in your normal daily life you are allowed to do only that which you have consent from the government. How many rounds are in your magazine? Can you carry concealed? How much water is in your toilet? Are you wearing a helmet? The complete governing of your life makes you a slave, which goes back to last week's lesson. Now, the perversion of this concept of consent of the governed into do you have consent is a total perversion of what we thought that we had. And let's not forget that in the uh, Declaration of Independence, Jefferson, who was a Unitarian, but still he wrote of the laws of nature and nature's God and the certain unalienable rights which the people have, which are endowed by their creator. People, the federal government did not create you. Clearly defined there is the maxim of the rights that we have because of our humanity, which originate with our creator and not with government. And they shall not be modified, codified, or abrogated to facilitate the ascension of one group or person over another. So let me get to Jefferson's definition of rightful liberty again. Rightful liberty is unobstructed action according to our will, within limits drawn around us by the equal rights of others. That is so critical. But he continues, I do not add within the limits of the law, because law is often but the tyrant's will, and always so when it violates the rights of an individual. 
Here again, Jefferson differentiates between the individual and government. Government makes and enforces laws. And Jefferson cites how government laws can be used to subvert and destroy individual rights and individual liberty. But has not our society devolved to the point that the laws of man are considered omnipotent and therefore must be used and enforced to control the rights of the individual, which as previously mentioned, originate not with government but with our Creator? Well, I guess that pretty well defines it. The laws of man supersede and are supreme over the rights bestowed upon us by our Creator. In the minds and actions of many, government supersedes God. If you don't believe it, just read them and weep. I can find no better illustration of this unfortunate truth than what I have heard politicians say, prosecutors say, and many other people say, sheriffs say, and that is the fact that if the federal government, when you ask them this question, if the federal government passes a law which is clearly unconstitutional, what steps would you take to counter such action? Ask any official that, and I'd be willing to bet you what they will say is, I can do nothing by what authority would I act actually heard a sheriff campaigning in Colorado make that statement. I could do nothing. By what authority could I act? And you know what? The good Republicans elected that crazy guy. They did because he was a Republican, not because he would stand for their rights, but because he was a member of a party. The party of Lincoln, the party of Karl Marx. And they're one and the same. But Back to the subject of secession. Is secession constitutional? Well, yes, it is. Because the Constitution was an act of secession. And how can something be brought into creation which abolishes that which created it? And what created the Constitution was the unlawful secession. And it was unlawful because there was a law in place. Article 13 of the Articles of Confederation. And I mentioned this on my program last night or in my class last night. And I think it's very critical that people understand this. And I found this and I was quite surprised. I had not seen this in all my years of research, but the General Assembly of the State of Pennsylvania in 1788 stipulated that their seven representatives, actually there were eight, but they had elected seven. Benjamin Franklin went by, I guess, unanimous appeal. But the seven that they had selected to attend the Constitutional Convention did so under the strict limitations of only amending the Articles of Confederation to meet the exigencies necessary. The General Assembly of Pennsylvania, then in that document, and I have that document for those who would like a copy, 
then in that document, so stipulated that those seven men, or eight totally counting Franklin, operated outside of their authority granted to them by the state of Pennsylvania, and therefore they acted completely and totally on their own. They did not act with the assent, with the consent, with the authority of the state of Pennsylvania. That is most telling. That is something for people to think about when this convention of states argument, if it should ever come up again. To summarize, then again, is secession constitutional? Is secession legal? Is secession right? Oh, most definitely it is. Because the contract was a contract at will with no term. Common law very simply states you have the right to leave if you feel like that you have been wronged in any manner. And you do not have to list the reasons why, although the seceding states in 1860 did. So folks, I got to tell you, I'm really growing tired of the assault on our ancestors and what they did and to call them traitors and to go back to Scalia's point that the moral issues of secession were settled with guns, bullets, and death. And during that war, let's not forget to prove and to deny secession, Lincoln killed about 800,000 white people in that war and about one million black folks. Yes, about one quarter of the population Four million of the blacks of the South were actually killed or died from disease or what have you during the terms of what we refer to as the Civil War. And that is just to document and to cover the points made in last week's Whistling Dixie. Well, folks, get ready. Hang on, because we're going to jump over on the second hour and talk about some unsung heroes. And this is after, you know, a short little break in the middle. And I thank you for tuning in to Whistling Dixie. And I thank Jim Ram again for allowing us to have this forum. Hang on, folks. We'll be back in a couple. Have you ever noticed that even though America spends twice as much as the rest of the world on doctors and medicine, we're still some of the sickest people on the planet? If you think the medical community has failed us and that there must be a better way, then you'll want to tune in to the Your DIY Health radio program here on the Eurofolk Radio Network. The program runs every Monday through Thursday from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. The host, Sergeant Jim Ram Retired, was facing a laundry list of chronic health conditions that his physician was telling him were incurable. He became a student of true medical nutrition and learned how that he could reverse every one of his ailments with science-based, clinically verified medical nutrition. In just a few months, he was able to reverse high blood pressure, gastric reflux, sleep apnea, arthritis, degenerative disc disease, heart arrhythmia, AFib, and much more. Now he wants to help you do the same. Tune in to the Your DIY Health Radio program Monday through Thursday 
from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time here on the Eurofolk Radio Network. Well, step up here on the porch, folks, and uh, let's continue our discussion of secession. Now, I said that I was going to jump in this second hour and talk about some unsung heroes, but uh, when I was uh, contemplating uh, the fact that I haven't really covered the subject of secession in a manner which it deserves without bringing up some very important aspects of secession, of which uh, most people are unaware, and I'm sure you didn't get taught this, down at the uh, local uh, gulag uh, that we call a public school. But uh, before we do that, uh, I I was just wanting to mention to you folks that uh, if you ever find yourself in the area of Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, or if you find yourselves in that region of South Carolina, you owe it to yourselves. You really do. If your heart beats with Southern pride... If you care about your ancestors and you care about what the South used to be and what the South is will always be in the hearts of so many, stop in at Dixie Republic. You know, they have a wonderful choice of merchandise and what have you. And, and, you know, that is, you know, kind of ancillary to the way that I felt when I walked through those doors again back on July the 9th. Uh, and it was, again, if your heart beats Southern, if you love Leonard Skinner, if you love Southern Rock, Marshall Tucker, Charlie Daniels, if you, if it really, if that's what you like, when you walk through the door, you realize you're home. It may be a home away from home, but you realize you're home, and you realize that the people who are there are family, and that is so critical in any business, and the one thing about it is, is you feel welcome there, whether you came in there to buy a t-shirt or where you came in there to sit over in Confederate Corner, have a cup of coffee or water or what have you, and just talk with the people there. It's a true great experience so if you get the opportunity stop in and visit the old good folks as they were referred to the Mance Jolly gang stop in there and if you don't know your confederate history you won't know who Mance Jolly was but stop in and enjoy a bit of time with some friends you haven't met yet or old friends if you've been there before but that being said, now let's jump back into the idea of secession. And we talked about secession previously, and we talked about was it legal according to common law. And of course it was, because again, it was a uh, contract or a compact without a term. And without a term, it's subject, it's an at-will agreement. That is common law. It's been accepted law for 400 years. So, yes, it was, in fact, legal. But was the South the first people or the first group of people to say, hey, you know, I don't like what's happening here, and I want out? Just like any other contract. I don't like what the other side is doing. I want out, and I will just leave. 
Don't want to fight you. Don't want to argue with you. I just want to leave. Well, you know, contrary to uh, most what we have been taught, the birthplace of American secessionist sentiment was not at all just in the South or especially in South Carolina, but the heart of New England Yankee culture was the birthplace of the thought of secession. Salem, Massachusetts, and that was more than half a century before the first shot was fired at Fort Sumter, or for before that, before Lincoln blockaded the harbor, which is also an act of war. But from 1800 to 1815, there were three serious attempts at secession orchestrated by New England Federalists. And this is one heck of a story, people. Most people, and I know you haven't been taught this, and maybe some of you have read it, but it is great because in 1800, Thomas Jefferson wins the presidency. And so he is then suddenly the antithesis. He is the hated man of the New England Yankee Federalist headquarters. So let's take a look at some of the things here that... uh, Once he took office, and he, of course, was president, Aaron Burr was vice president, second in votes, and, of course, Thomas Jefferson put his friend, good friend James Madison into as Secretary of State. And especially after Madison and Jefferson engineered the Louisiana Purchase, the Yankees saw their political power, which had been created with the creation of this new government under the Constitution, they saw that what they had created to enslave others could now be used to enslave them if more Southerners moved into the areas of the Louisiana Purchase and their idealism created votes. And so they saw this thing that they had worked so hard, this constitution that they had put together to control others, to tax others at will. The fact is that somebody with enough votes, with enough territory, might be able to turn the guns on them, the guns of power. So now, if these New England Federalists would have been Southerners and said the things that the Southerners said in 1861, rather than what these Yankees said in 1803, they would have long ago been called by modern-day historians. Nah, they wouldn't, because historians don't always publish the truth. But they would have been called the maniacal fire-eaters or traitors, like the Southerners were. And a quote is, I will rather anticipate a new confederacy exempt from the corrupt and corrupting influence and oppression of the aristocratic Democrats of the South. Now, who said that? Well, that good old Massachusetts Senator Timothy Pickering in 1803. And he said one of his friends, also a senator, Mr. James Hillhouse, said there will be a separation The white and the black population will mark the boundary. Oh, really? Oh, I'm sorry. That was Pickering, too, who said that. But really, the separation will be the black and white population? 
will be the separation of the country. Now, who wanted segregation first? Well, as the aforementioned uh, Senator James Hillhouse said, he said that, and I quote, the eastern states must and will dissolve the union and form a separate government. 1803, my goodness, isn't that what the South said? And why have they not been called traitors for wanting to do that? The northern states must be governed by Virginia or must govern Virginia. And there is no middle ground, said Aaron Burr, who had joined in with the New England Federalists in a secessionist plot. Hmm. So how come we don't know about this? Well, these Yankee Confederates were not an isolated band of idiots. They were just idiots. Power-seeking idiots. And they were among the leaders of the Federalist Party, some of whom had been involved in the Revolutionary War, and some of them had helped write the U.S. Constitution in 1787. Now, here's the thing that's kind of touching in a painful sort of way to the people who embrace the beginning of our country because of all people, John Hancock and Samuel Adams were among the New England Federalists. But these guys were getting older. But they had become Federalists. Even with all Samuel Adams did, with all John Hancock did to fight the British, they had become Federalists. Now, the push for secession came primarily from a younger generation of Federalist leaders, including George Cabot, Elbridge Gerry, who had failed to sign the Constitution because it didn't have a Bill of Rights. Remember him? Theophilius Parsons, Timothy Pickering, as I mentioned before, Theodore Sedgwick, John Quincy Adams, Fisher Ames, Harrison Gray Otis, Josiah Quincy, and Joseph Story, who would become a Supreme Court Justice. Their cause was virtually identical to the Southern Confederacy 50 years later. They claimed they were defending the principles of states' rights and self-government from an overbearing federal government. Wow, how the tables had turned. They condemned the Jefferson administration as being plagued by, and I quote, falsehood, fraud, and treachery which included oppression and barbarity and ruin among the nations. Look at the passion these people had in wanting to get away from Southern leadership. They believed that the South, and especially Virginia, was gaining too much wealth, <clears throat> pardon me, political power, and therefore influence, and was using that influence against New England politically. Their complaints are virtually identical to John C. Calhoun's concerns in the 1830s about the unjust regional impacts of excessive federal power. Now, why did these New England Yankees, what was their thought patterns? Well, in 1800, Thomas Jefferson's Republican, Democratic Republican Party took control of the presidency, but also, that Democratic-Republican Party took over the power in the Congress from the Federalists. But let's not forget now that on the eve of this, John Adams, who didn't even attend 
Jefferson's inauguration. He just packed up and left town. But on midnight appointments, he makes John Marshall Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And in an effort to control what was happening with the government at the time. And so, to the Federalist Party, this was just absolutely unacceptable because they abhorred Jefferson and all that the Democratic Republicans stood for. Now, the Parsons, the... uh, you know, I use that phrase uh, not uh, as I use it today, but the, uh, you know, the church folks who were extremely influential in New England even likened Jefferson to Beelzebub and talked of, and I quote, a moral putrefaction that covers our land, unquote. Wow. Wow. To the Federalists, Jefferson was not just a political opponent who had defeated them. He was the personification of evil. Now, folks, as we stop and look about the political situation today, how different is it from what it was back then? You know, and I'm apolitical. I don't want anything to do with politics. But here's the thing that I will tell you. Is this not exactly what the, what the New England people said about Jefferson? And this is not exactly what everybody is saying about uh, on the conservative right that is saying about Biden today? And they're right. In many instances, they are right. I, I'm not going to argue with that. But what I, my, the point I'm making is, what is the difference between then and now, really, when it comes to politics. People want politics because they want power, because with power comes wealth and the ability to gain that wealth on the backs of other people. That is why I am an anarchist at heart. That's why I hate both political parties, because they're both out for the same thing. What... Jefferson was absolutely unacceptable to the Federalists because his philosophy, his policies, and even what came to bear there was his religious beliefs, which were claimed to be incompatible with the Federalist worldview. Part of the element of the Federalist was that public and private virtue were required for a successful republic. Really, so the New England Yankees were claiming the same thing that today's conservative element is claiming. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just bringing in the parallels of history. Pardon me. But to the New England Yankees, virtue as they defined it, implied a dedication to an organized religion, and Thomas Jefferson was known to be deeply hostile to the congregational clergy and the long-rooted religious sensibilities of the majority of New England's inhabitants. More than any other public figure of his time, Jefferson insisted on the strict separation of church and state. Now, folks... You know, I I don't know how many of you are even aware 
But this was a big contention with Madison and Jefferson as opposed to Patrick Henry because Patrick Henry was on the other side, was considered to be the most devout Christian among the founders, especially in Virginia. And they wrote about his Christianity. But let's not forget that in a letter from Thomas Jefferson to James Madison, Jefferson said that we should fervently pray for the death of Patrick Henry because Patrick Henry was a devout Christian of which neither Madison nor Jefferson were. Because of this, uh, Jefferson in the uh, from the pulpit had been habitually denounced as an antichrist by the political preachers. And uh, most of the preachers in Yankee North were militant Federalists also. And they just hated Jefferson. More false witness was probably borne by the ministers of New England and New York against Jefferson than has ever been born against any other American political figure. Many Federalists apparently could not even imagine that Jefferson, whose party was then in control of the federal government, was actually, in their mind, standing in the way of state-sponsored Puritanism. Ah, okay. The Federalists also believed strongly that uh, race and ethnic purity were an essential ingredients of a successful republic. Oh my, weren't these the abolitionists a few years later? These New Englanders, New Englanders pardon me, thought of themselves as, and I quote, choice offspring of the choicest people, unpolluted by foreign blood, unquote. <laughs> Oh, yeah, here we go. Mm, who are the racists, baby? The New England Federalists were almost universally of English descent. Most of them agreed with William Smith Shaw, and I quote, that the grand cause of all our present difficulties may be traced to so many hordes of foreigners immigrating to America. Hmm, this is not new, is it? And they stated, our progenitors were choice scions from the best English stock, added Federalist William Cunningham. Their natural wants did not force them here for subsistence, like the wild Irish and those sour Germans in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Ooh, talk about racist. <laughs> and they criticized the South. And in a widely cited, if not celebrated, remark, William Stoughton stated, and I quote, God sifted a whole nation that he might send choice grain over into this wilderness, speaking of New England. Well, given these strong feelings about the primacy and the importance of their ethnic purity, this Jeffersonian policy of expansionism, expansionism, especially the Louisiana Purchase, 
which they believed would bring in hordes of foreigners into the U.S., was an abomination to the Federalist. Josiah Quincy was one of the most respected and influential of the Federalists. He warned that the Louisiana Purchase obligated the nation to assimilate a number of French and Spanish subjects whose habits, manners, and ideas of civil government are wholly foreign to our republican institutions, unquote. Quincy was so strong in his beliefs, he, he stated that if the purchase were consummated, the only recourse for New England was secession. For the purpose meant to him, to Mr. Quincy, the following. The bonds of this union are virtually dissolved, that the states which compose it are free from their moral obligation, and that as it will be the right of all, so it will be the duty of some to prepare definitely for a separation, amicably if they can, violently if they must. Unquote. <laughs> Ooh. <clears throat> the more things change, the more they stay the same. Well, the Federalists, as well as the Jeffersonians, understood that the Constitution had been a carefully considered compact between the states which formed the Union for certain well-defined reasons. Well, <laughs> yeah, that ain't exactly right in many instances now, is it? But at least that was what they stated. Any measure that would fundamentally alter its relationships without a formal amendment would require consent of the parties to the compact. But the Louisiana Purchase was carried out by Jefferson and 26 senators without consulting Congress and without first attaining any such agreement among the states. So, folks, was the Louisiana Purchase constitutional? Good question. Many of the Federalists considered this to be a gross violation of the Constitution and also a complete mockery of states' rights. Well, it was about 1803 that the New England Federalists really settled down and started talking about secession and getting out of the Union. Now, their leader was Thomas Pickering who was the most prominent of the Federalists in New England. He had been elected colonel of the Essex County, Massachusetts militia at the outset of the American Revolution, and he serves, served as the adjutant general and quartermaster general of the Revolutionary Army. After the Revolution, he was a member of Congress. He was also Secretary of War and a U.S. Senator from Massachusetts, as we mentioned before. But in a letter to George Cabot, Pickering wrote of the depravity of Jefferson's plan of destruction and concluded that the principles of our revolution, the revolution of 1776, points to the remedy, a separation, that this can be accomplished and without spilling one drop of blood, I have little doubt, Pickering said. Hmm. Pickering believed that the different cultures of the North and the South were inherently incompatible and would only lead to perpetual political conflict, if not violence. Oh, he was spot on about that, wasn't he? The people of the East cannot reconcile their habits, views, and interests with those of the South and the West. 
Pickering said. So now let's jump back to 1794, about nine years, almost ten years previous to what I mentioned earlier about Rufus King and Oliver Ellsworth approaching John Taylor of Caroline about splitting the country at that time into north and south, citing almost exactly the same thing that Pickering says nine years later. Pickering undoubtedly had in mind the clear cultural differences among different sets of British immigrants that had been outlined in the book, and I'm sure many of you have probably read it, Albion's Seed. But Fisher charts four distinct migrations to the U.S. from England. Now that would be the historian, David Hackett Fisher. And so he mentioned the exodus of Puritans from the east of England to Massachusetts from 1629 to 1640, the migration from 1642 to 1675 of a small royalist elite and a very large number of indentured servants to Virginia, a movement from the North Midlands of England and Wales to the Delaware Valley between 1675 and 1725, and the flow of English-speaking people from North Britain and Ireland to Appalachia in 1718 and 1775. Oh, the Scots-Irish. These four groups had much in common, but were also very different in their religion, their social aspects, their, their own history, their language. Uh, you know, listen to the Irish and the Scottish traditional dialects. But most importantly was their conceptions of politics, order, power, and freedom. And these were the differences among the four British cultures in colonial America. Dutch, Spanish, French, and other immigrants created even more uh, diversity. Oh gosh, I hate that word. The Federalists, however, were stridently opposed to multicultural assimilation. They thought secession and a truly federal system of government was necessary to avoid violent clashes among these incompatible cultures. Ooh. Hmm. Didn't Madison talk about that in the Federalist Papers? Hmm. These men, being of European ancestry, understood fully how ethnic divisions had historically been the source of much slaughter and strife, going back to their own history and the great wars between Scotland, Ireland, uh, and, of course, against the British between those. But this cultural incompatibility did not necessarily equate to commercial relationships. Ah, now we get into more of the true reason for why the Constitution was created to control commercial relationships, among which prominently was the ability to tax. Pickering and other Federalists thought the creation of a Northern Confederacy would be economically beneficial to both the North and the South just as Oliver Ellsworth and Rufus King had said to John Taylor of Caroline. 
Now, they thought it would eliminate much of the political conflict that would inevitably occur under a more centralized governmental regime. Well, gosh, guys, isn't this the same thing the South wanted to do some 55 years later? Hmm. Quote, a northern confederacy would unite congenial characters and present a fairer prospect of public happiness, while the southern states, having a similarity of habits, might be left to manage their affairs in their own way. Well, I'll be damned. That's exactly what people want today. They don't want to be managed by Washington. And I didn't mean George. I meant the Washington government. They believed back then that secession would render a friendly and commercial intercourse between the North and the South. Wow, same thing the South said, 1860. And then they said, well, the southern states would probably want to contract out for such things as naval protection by the northern confederacy, while the products of the south would be important to the navigation and commerce of the north. Wow. We're discussing the elements of the Civil War long before it ever happened, aren't we? Well, in today's world, some historians have portrayed Senator Pickering and his colleagues as crackpots or traitors because of their secessionist views, but all they were really advocating was an American continent organized more along the lines of modern Switzerland with its 26 cantons than the highly centralized megastate the U.S. had become under the Constitution that these Federalists created. Now, they created a government that they believed only they could run. And when it went into the hands of Jefferson, uh, they went into full-blown panic. So, anyway, in 1804, the New England Federalists began plotting their strategy. In a letter to Theodore Lyman, Thomas Pickering explained that Massachusetts would take the lead in secession, upon which time Connecticut would instantly join, as would New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Vermont, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, east of the Susquehanna River. They didn't want those damn western farmers in Pennsylvania. Gosh, Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, what can we do about those crazy people that love freedom and don't want to be taxed to death? Hmm, that would show up in 1860 as well, wouldn't it? Well, Pickering and his associates decided that New York was the key to persuading all of New England states to secede as a block. So they struck a deal with Aaron Burr, the vice president. The party apparatus would do all it could to help Burr get elected governor of New York, and in turn, Burr would see to it that New York promptly seceded and became part of the modern Confederacy. Wow, this is just shortly before Mr. Burr kills Mr. Hamilton, wasn't it? So the election was very close in New York, but Burr lost by 7,000 votes. An exceptionally bitter, with Burr's opponent, Alexander Hamilton, denouncing him as lacking in integrity, dangerous, intemperate, profligate, and dictatorial. Hmm. <laughs> 
Well, we're about to get into the root cause here, aren't we? After the election, Burr demanded an apology, and when Hamilton refused, Burr challenged him to a duel. Well, now, that is, in essence, correct, but there was a lot of communication that went back and forth between them before that, but uh, no need to get into that now. But uh, we all know that uh, Burr won the duel, killing his adversary with one shot. And then he became a pariah throughout the country. Now, I'm not sure how many people are aware, but New York first charged him with murder. And being the good attorney that he was, Burr said, Well, you know, it's going to be hard for New York to charge me with murder when the duel took place in New Jersey on the plains of Weehawken, where dueling is still legal. But... The people in New England mourned the death of Hamilton. Now, there are some historians who will tell you that he was mourned throughout the South, too, and that is not correct. But he was called, and I quote, and I mean what occurred, and I quote, more memorial services were held in New England than ever had been held for a native son ever. Because of Burr's association with the Federalists, the death of Hamilton discredited and temporarily stopped the New England secession movement. Now, how many of us know anything about that whatsoever? When has that ever been brought up? Well, folks, the irony here is that throughout all of this machinations for secession in New England... Virtually no one ever questioned the right of secession. Any objections that were raised were utilitarian in nature. In other words, well, maybe the timing's not right, or maybe the how much money we can make from this or how much money we could lose from this have not been considered. But, Here is the thing. Thomas Jefferson knew of this secession movement based around his election, and he addressed it in his first inaugural address. Now, how much different is this from what Abraham Lincoln would say 61 years later? Well, 60 years later from the inauguration. And here's what Mr. Jefferson had to say. He said, if there be any among us who wish to dissolve the Union or to change its Republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error or opinion may be tolerated where reason is left to combat it. Unquote. Wow, let me read that one more time. And any of these states or if he said he would invade them to collect a tariff or the duties Mr. Jefferson again and I quote if there be any among us who wish to dissolve the union or to change its republican form let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error or opinion may be tolerated where reason is left free to combat it Unquote. Reason instead of war. What a 
difference there. Well, Jefferson, with the help of several, wrote the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798. Uh, and Madison, with the help of the previously mentioned uh, John Taylor of Caroline, wrote the Virginia Resolutions of 1798, which were suggested that, were power, that where powers were assumed by the national government, which not, had not been granted by the states, nullification is the rightful remedy and that every state has an original natural right to nullify of its own authority all assumptions of power by others within its limits. Thus, both major political parties in 1803 to 1812 believed in the inviolable states' rights of nullification and secession in the early 19th century. Well, now, here's something uh, people don't think about a great deal and that was during this time frame there were some uh, proposals for new amendments to the constitution made by the folks in the north who had decided that hey uh, you know maybe we should amend this constitution to protect ourselves okay so what was their amendments well they wanted to go back in essence, they didn't say this, but in essence they wanted to go back to the principles of the Articles of Confederation. Number one, they didn't want the president to be able to do more than one term rotation, as it was called in that time. We call it term limits today. Another <laughs> amendment that they offered, that they wanted to offer, for vote was that no if a president was like and they saw what was coming but if the president was from Virginia the next president could not be from the same state they wanted to put an amendment into the Constitution to cover that of course we all know or at least we should that Jefferson was followed by Madison and Madison was followed by Monroe so there was three Virginians in a row. Now, some people include Washington in that uh, about the, you know, they didn't like the Virginians. The Federalists loved Washington. Washington was no Southerner. He might have lived in the South, but he was no Southerner. Now we're going to jump into some of the other particulars here that uh, came along a little bit later after the Louisiana Purchase and what have you. But the New England Federalists believed that these Southern politicians who dominated the federal government at the time, again, the presidency and Congress, that they were intentionally harming the New England states. Wow, how that changed by 1860. Considerable credence was lent to their conspiracy theory. Oh, imagine that. At least in the minds of the Federalists. Because in 1807, Jefferson declared an embargo on all foreign trade. Hmm, both France and England. Now, you got to remember that uh, Jefferson was, uh, he favored the French, whereas Hamilton and the Federalists favored Great Britain, the UK. So, the embargo kindled the fires of secession that had been 
kind of cooled off by that Hamilton Burr feud and uh, death of Hamilton. The Federalists commenced planning a convention then that they hoped would lead to the creation of a northern confederacy. So, in 1807, at this time, Great Britain was at war with France, which is something they did on a regular basis. And it announced that it would secure her own seamen wherever found, which included United States ships. After a British warship captured the USS Chesapeake off Hampton Roads, Virginia, Jefferson imposed the embargo as a temporary expedient to stop this seizing of American ships and taking the men aboard and using them for the British Navy. Now, the abolition of this international commerce crushed the economy and it hurt New England disproportionately because where was all of the shipping, not all, but where was most of the shipping located? Now, New England was heavily trade-dependent. However, it has been estimated that about half of all of the trade with England and France during the embargo was continued by smugglers. Oh, we're going back to the uh, yeah, the John Hancock mode of commerce, ameliorating some of the harmful economic effects of the policy. But then Jefferson leaves office in January of 1809, and of course Madison, his Secretary of State, becomes president. And Madison almost immediately imposed an enforcement act which allowed for a war-on-drug-style seizure of goods on the mere suspicion that they were intended for export. Ain't government grand? If the government thinks you're doing something, if there's a suspicion they have it within their minds and within their power, the authority to seize whatever you might have? Now, Madison empowered the Army and the Navy to enforce the embargo, doing to American merchants in peacetime what our enemies would want to do during war. Now, this really got these New Englanders on the attack. They no longer plotted behind closed doors, but began to publicly call for secession. They issued a public proclamation reminding the nation that the U.S. Constitution was a treaty of alliance and confederation. Really? And that the central government was an association of states. Oh, what they would deny so many years later. <laughs> Ain't government grand. So, and I quote, Whenever its provisions are violated, meaning the Constitution, or its original principles departed from by a majority of the states or of their people, it is no longer an effective instrument, but that any state is at liberty by the spirit of that contract to withdraw itself from the Union. People, listen to this. We ought to be quoting this today. This ought to be the mantra of the people who truly want freedom and liberty. Let me read that quote one more time. It's important. Whenever the provisions of the government are violated, or its original principles departed from by a majority of the states or of the people, 
it is no longer an effective instrument, but that any state is at liberty by the spirit of that contract to withdraw itself from the Union. Unquote. Now, how different is that from the wording of the Declaration of Independence? Ah, well, the Massachusetts legislature formally condemned the embargo of Madison and demanded that Congress repeal it and declared the Enforcement Act not legally binding. Wow, this was an act of nullification, virtually identical to South Carolina's nullification in 1829-1830 during that time frame. A New England convention was scheduled where the strategy for secession was to be worked out. The New England public was just as outraged as the Federalist politicians were over the embargo. The people peppered Washington with protests. That's a quote. And of the five New England states, Madison carried only tiny Vermont in the 1808 election. A sectional presidency. Now, we would... Have to endure the same thing in 1860, wouldn't we? Just the other way around. Madison won the election, but the embargo generated so much animosity toward him that he ended it in March 1809. Ironically, that action took some of the wind out of the sails of the planned secession convention, at least for the time being. So let's take a look here. And here's something I wanted to touch on, too, because we this was the subject last week, and that was slavery, and then uh, the fact that uh, uh, good old uh, Abe Lincoln probably killed or led to the deaths, his, ad, his actions led to the deaths in the uh, uh, contraband camps and in other places of almost a million black folks. There were four million who were alive in 1860. And census records and other records that were available show that a million were not there. Around a million black people were not there around the end of the war. Yes, some of them went north. But the numbers, when you look at this, and last week I didn't get a chance to go into the uh, records that I had on, I didn't have enough time, I should have stretched it out. But the records from the uh, contraband camps around Nashville, Tennessee is atrocious. Those people lived for years without shelter, the ones who were able to survive, even though monies had been allocated for buildings at the contraband camps. The money was stolen by the Union military and their officers. Who needs to build anything for those anyway? Well... Let's look at some of the attitudes while we have some time here. We've got about, uh, you know, maybe 10, 12, 14 minutes to go here. So I, I really want to cover this because it ties in so well with last week. And yes, folks, I am going to do these unsung heroes of the Confederacies, the Mance Jollies, the Turner Ashby's, the Patrick Claiborne's, the um, John Hunt Morgan's, and the John Singleton Mosby's. We're going to get into those, I promise you. I just, uh, this secession thing especially with today's uh, events and today's attitudes among the people this really needed to be covered 
But we know that under the Constitution that five slaves could be counted as three whites for the purpose of determining congressional representation. This procedure provided the Yankee Confederates with yet another rationale for secession. They believe this arrangement artificially stacked the electoral decks against them. Hmm. As Josiah Quincy would claim, and I quote, the slave representation is the cause of all of the difficulties we labor under. Because of this arrangement, the southern states have an influence in our national councils, altogether disproportionate for their wealth, strength, and resources. Well, now, these Federalists never voiced any moral objections to this three-fifths clause, which is all we hear now. In fact, they argued that blacks should be counted as nothing rather than three-fifths of a white man for the purposes of congressional representation. Now, I promise you, Coach is not going to teach you that down at the high school. Further, they did not make any case whatsoever that southern slavery should be ended. Wow. These benevolent Yankees only use slavery for a political sledgehammer. Their insensitivity, though, towards slavery should not be surprising considering the Federalists' strongly held beliefs regarding the primacy of ethnic homogeneity and their belief in the superiority of their English descendants. Even though slavery itself was abolished in Massachusetts in the 1780s, the Massachusetts communities had by the turn of the century, and I quote, tightened their poor laws, warned more Negroes from their boundaries, and established segregated schools and churches. Uh, Massachusetts. Not South Carolina. Not Georgia. Not Arkansas. Massachusetts. Segregated schools and churches. The Federalist leaders also lectured free blacks that they should not try too hard to climb up the social and economic ladder. And here's a quote for you on that. Be content in the humble station in which providence has placed you, unquote. Well, one of those good uh, Yankee preachers named Jedediah Morse lectured the Negro Congregation of Boston's African Meeting House in 1808. And that's what he told them. Be content in the humble station in which providence has placed you. Boy, they want us all to do that now, don't they? Have things changed? If the Federalists thought the three-fifths clause of the Constitution was oppressive, they would have considered the abolition of slavery in the South and the extension of the franchise to blacks as an unmitigated disaster. Historian James Banner concluded, and I will quote, Freed, it appeared, the Negro was more of a political threat than enslaved. What the Federalists wanted and what their assaults upon the Three-Fifths Clause were designed to gain was not the abolition of slavery, but the abolition of Negro representation totally. Unquote. Because of their belief that the political power of the South was perpetual, the Federalists saw no prospect of ever eliminating the Three-Fifths Clause at least not in their lifetimes, so to them, secession was the only sensible course. Now, I want to 
get in here. I'm limited on time, but I want to get in about the War of 1812. And, of course, we know the War of 1812 somehow magically occurred right after the 20-year charter for the first U.S. bank expired and was not renewed by Congress. Wow, then suddenly we have a war. But let me jump into this. Virginia statesman John Randolph was a far more consistent proponent of limited government than his fellow Virginian Thomas Jefferson. Now, how many of us have ever been told that? He frequently pilloried Jefferson on such issues as the embargo and eventually became a close friend and political collaborator of this Federalist icon we've mentioned before, Mr. Josiah Quincy. Randolph teamed up with the Federalist in opposing Jeffersonian interventionism, including the War of 1812. Of course, that was Madison who did that, but it's called the Jeffersonian Revolution. In the last moments of a congressional debate before the war was declared, Randolph argued with John C. Calhoun against going to war until he was ruled out of order by Speaker of the House and war advocate Henry Clay. Ooh, Abraham Lincoln's idol. Calhoun then prepared a bill declaring war on Great Britain, which passed by a 79-49 to 49 vote, with New York, New Jersey, Delaware, and all the New England states voting for peace. To the Federalist leaders, this was the last straw. And they said, We are to be taxed beyond our means and subjected to military conscription. An alarmed governor, George Morris of New York, wrote to Timothy Pickering, stating, and I quote, we cannot exist but in poverty and contempt without foreign commerce. By a war of any continuance with Great Britain, that commerce will be totally annihilated. And the Massachusetts legislature declared the war needless and unwise and denounced it as a wanton sacrifice of the interest of New England. So, secession saw its very beginnings in the Puritan New England culture and not the people of the South. It's important that we know that. It's also important, I am continually asked, had someone ask this this morning, well, why do you keep talking about this old stuff all the time? What difference does it make? It makes a heck of a lot of difference. I mean, let's not forget, you know, that uh, those who fail to learn the lessons of history are destined to repeat its mistakes. And we see that throughout history, many people have been the people who cherish freedom and who cherish liberty, rightful liberty, have had to endure with the very same dynamics that are happening now. Government is not the answer. Government will never be the answer. Governments will always be controlled by the wealthy, the people who have enough money to buy it, will always control it. And the people who don't want to control others will always be the victims. And government is a force multiplier. Government gives one person who would like to be a thief the ability to rob a lot more people. Now, why would I just want to take 20% of everything everyone in the state of Georgia had if I could achieve the power to take 20 to 40 to 50% of what everyone in the country had? It just does not make sense 
to have government. Government never gives you in any form or respect the protection that you think you're getting because any protection you get, you pay dearly for it in your property and in your freedoms. People, we have to wake up to this. It is absolutely necessary. And that is the reason that we, we, I, felt like I really needed to get into a discussion of secession. Because today, secession is our only answer. Because there is no remedy. We have a right to petition for grievances. For remedy for those. We have a right to petition, but the government does not have any obligation whatsoever to answer those petitions. That has been so ruled by the clowns in black gowns on multiple occasions. Just like they have ruled that they have no, the police have no obligation to protect you. They've done that three times. The police have no obligation to protect you. And they have implied immunity if they kill you while they're allegedly performing their jobs. People, how much more tyranny are you going to accept from this government before you decide to secede as an individual? And when individuals secede in significant numbers then it becomes important. This has to be a bottom-up structure. It cannot be a bottom-down dynamic. It just will not work. Folks, thank you so much for taking your time to listen to this crazy old rebel madman as we talk about the perils and we talk about honoring our ancestors who so are richly deserving of what they fought against and what they fought against was an oppressive government. God bless each and every one of you. Hope everything goes well for you this week. See you next week. In a little thing that you want to know Turn to talk radio Time it up and away you go. It's on talk radio. Oh, you get it.